good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm afraid we've gathered you here under false pretenses. Uh, this is Alan Bennett, so <laughs> that at least we can provide. But we're not going to talk about people uh, because we both think there's been enough talk about people. So instead, I'm going to ask Alan questions about his entire career as a playwright and hopefully, uh, hopefully prompt him into talking about, about uh, his plays in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, as well as, uh, as, well as his more recent plays. So I'm going to start uh, by, saying, by asking, um, Beyond the Fringe, how much of Beyond the Fringe did you write? How confident were you as a writer on Beyond the Fringe? Um, I think I wrote... Uh, well, Peter wrote the most, Peter Cook. Um, Jonathan... Uh, recycled stuff that he'd written already. Uh, um, Dod Dodley didn't write anything other than the music, uh, so I suppose I was about third. Th uh, I, wrote, uh, I was third on the list, as it were. But uh, I was far from confident about the stuff I'd written. And you had, uh, if you, they were all comedians, so you had to fight for the stuff that you'd written, really. Um, uh, I wrote... Um, uh, the, the, most of the sketch that ends the first half, which is called After Myth of War, um, which Peter didn't like particularly. Uh, he, he tended to uh, fall back on... Uh, he, didn't, he didn't really like anything hard-edged, uh, and he tended to fall back on, on the sort of fantasy and stuff about uh, newts and stuff like that. Uh, but... Um, uh, uh, and then I did an, an, a thing which the, the others called the boring old man sketch, uh, wh where, which was uh, I thought of as being very worthy and very satirical. And uh, I think I was talking about South Africa, uh, and it was very boring. <laughs> um, but they put up with that. Um, but um, uh, we did the thing that, uh, in retrospect. I regret was how uh, we undervalued uh, Dudley's performance. Really, only because not, none of us really uh, were particularly musical, uh, and uh, and so uh, and Dudley had always to be pushed into doing things. So that the the uh, the parodies he did of Benjamin Britten, for instance. He only did that, I think, two or three days before the show opened. He only wrote it. Um, but uh, he, um, he, he always felt his contribution had been undervalued, and he was quite right. I mean, the, in, in um, not only but also, it always ended with, with uh, Dudley at the piano and Peter uh, sort of la, 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 uh, standing by the piano, sort of la, lying along. Uh, and that really was absolutely Peter's attitude to Dudley's music, really. <laughs> it, uh, um, but uh, I, uh, I was never so happy when, I, when we stopped and I found I could do things on my own. I didn't think I would be able to do stuff on my own, but I, uh, I was glad when, when, you know, to find that I could actually write on my own. So when did you first, uh, when did you first think you could write a play? Um, well, I've, I tried to write a play. When we, when we were in New York with Beyond the Fringe in 19, 
between 1962 and 64. And I started really out of homesickness, I think, writing a play about uh, a school uh, and about, about a state school, well, such as I'd gone to. Uh, and, and I sent it, the rough draft of it, to Peter Bridge, who was uh, an impresario then. Uh, and he uh, encouraged me. He didn't say it was rubbish, which I think it was. Um, and, uh, but then when I came back to England uh, from New York, uh, I put it on one side. And, and that really, uh, in retrospect, was, uh, although it was nearly 50 years later or 40 years later, uh, was the origin of the History Boys, really. Because, I mean, the, I, it was, History Boys was a play about a state school, and, as this one was. Uh, but I'd, in the interval, learned how to write plays. But I, um, I think the first, uh, the first time I, I, uh, I, I used to write sketches for Ned Sherin's late night shows, which not that was the week that was, but the ones that succeeded that. Uh, and some of them I felt uh, had more of a permanent life than, than, than a television Saturday night. I mean, the, I did a parody of T. Lawrence and one of Virginia Woolf, and I began to see that I could maybe shape them into something. Um, and also uh, do something which we'd never done in Beyond the Fringe. There was no point in Beyond the Fringe where there was any... Um, Ambiguity between uh, it being funny or being sad. There was you were it was always had to be funny, uh, and uh, and I wanted to do things that were both uh, funny and sad, uh, and um, and so I began collecting stuff, and uh, uh, and then uh, in 1967, I uh, I wrote uh, 40 years on. I'll put together 40 years on which is again a play about a school, but it was a public school. But it, um, it was a, uh, a play that um, looked back on, on English uh, cultural history, I suppose, from between 1900 and 1940. Um, and it w parts of it were quite lyrical and uh, um, uh, over-lyrical probably, but... Uh, they, uh, I didn't. I sent it to. You know, first of all, I was walking on Primrose Hill, and Frith Banbury, who was an old-fashioned theatre producer, saw me and stopped me and asked me what I was doing. And I said about the play, and he asked to, to see it, and so I sent it to him. Uh, I, in the previously, I'd sent it to Kenneth Tyner, uh, who was here uh, at, uh, as a dramaturg for the National Theatre or for the Old Vic, uh, and he. Um, he said, which I think this was a standard put-off, uh, oh, it's a commercial play, you shouldn't waste it on us. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so anyway, I, I then showed it to, uh, to Frith Bambury, and he uh, thought it would work in the West End, but he didn't have the resources to put it on, so he gave it to, or suggested I give it to Stoll Theatres, which was um, Prince Littler. Uh, uh, and uh, and they they did want to put it on, though Prince Litter, I'm sure, never read it. Um, <laughs> but uh, they and Toby Rowland was the the uh, moving spirit there, and he uh, 
have suggested they ask Gielgud to do it, and I never conceived that Gielgud would be interested in it, but he was, and, uh, uh, and so he, although there were a lot of, uh, as there always were with, with John, there were a lot of uh, toings and froings, and he losing his confidence and saying, oh, no, I don't think I'll do it, and then, uh, and then, <laughs> then deciding he would do it, and, but um, he then eventually, he eventually did do it, and, um, and eventually did it very well, though it was hair-raising, really. <laughs> um, we, um, he, could, he, never learned, he, he never learned his words until the last minute, or uh, at that time he didn't. Um, and uh, we opened in Manchester on tour, and he, he really knew only half the script. Uh, <laughs> and he would actually forget the names of the other characters on the stage. <laughs> Uh, and just say, oh, no, no, yeah, you, yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was shocked because we, we, we played in the Palace Theatre, which I think is now the big opera theatre in Manchester. And, uh, and there were about, sometimes no more than 30 or 40 people in the audience, even though it was Gielgud, who they, you know, were not used to seeing. Um, but he was totally... Uh, unconcerned that uh, this audience, however small it was, saw him making a fool of himself. He, he didn't count it as being a real audience. Uh, <laughs> it was for him just a rehearsal in which some people had come in, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so uh, we're unembarrassed by it. Um, and then we went to Brighton where uh, friends of his began to come in and uh, uh, quite grand people like uh, Diana Duff Cooper and uh, Enid Bagnold and uh, Cyril Connolly. And, um, and he then began to pull his socks up a bit. And also the, there was more laughter in Brighton than there'd been in Manchester, not surprisingly. <laughs> uh, and so you then began to see it might work. And, uh, but it was only just really ready when, he, when we came into the Apollo. Um, and the crucial thing was uh, that the last preview, uh, Noel Coward came. Uh, and, uh, and Noel Coward uh, went to his dressing room afterwards and, and uh, famously he used to uh, shake his finger at people. He said, it's a very good play. Uh, and, uh, and this gave Gilgood enormous confidence. And, uh, and he did a very good performance on the first night. And... Uh, uh, and and then it, it, uh, everybody was pleased because they rediscovered him as a comic actor, which they'd forgotten. I mean, he'd uh, he'd previously been here or at the Old Vic doing um, oh Oedipus, uh, uh, where uh, with Peter Brook, and uh, where there weren't many laughs. <laughs>, uh, and, uh, well, there were, there were laughs, but they weren't actually in the script. I mean. Uh, the, the, there was famously the, the, uh, there were supposed to be people uh, dying of the plague in the play, and they, they were so there were people uh, tethered to the uprights of the balconies, uh, uh, meant to be the dying people of Thebes, and um, but the audience didn't, not surprisingly, didn't gather this when they came <laughs> in, and 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 asked them for programs. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and then um, uh, Irene Worth was in it, and she wasn't really famous for her sense of humour. And uh, there was a tiny little um, uh, kind of pyramid on the stage, 
uh, on which she was supposed to impale herself, uh, finally. And uh, one rehearsal, uh, it had, she couldn't find it. And, and, uh, and she said, oh, where's my plinth? Where is my plinth? And Gilgood said, do you mean Plinth Philip or Plinth Charles? <laughs> and, uh, I think, I think uh, Peter Brook was very sharp with him about this because it, it, it wasn't Peter Brook's notion of the theatre at all. But anyway, um, he, uh, when he, he, he was delightful to work with because he, uh, he was a real gent. I, never, I, I only once saw him lose his temper and, that was, and he apologised immediately afterwards and that was because one of his props had been misplaced. But uh, he, was, he was wonderful to work with and he would no, no doubts ever that he, he was the one person the audience would watch. It didn't matter what all the kids were doing and they were messing about, they were, they were quite difficult. Uh, and uh, a lesser actor would be trying to suppress the other activities. He didn't bother, he just knew that people would watch him. Uh, and uh, and he was uh, w wonderful to to just to watch him and and also to see which I'd been told about how he quickly he could turn it on and off. I mean that he he could be wreathed in tears uh, as, as he was at the end of the first act, uh, uh, which is a memoir of the first war, and then come off stage and it would all be you know he'd be no feeling for it at all really. It was uh, and it's what he called the terry tears. He could just turn it on. <laughs> and the um, the uh, the young actors in uh, Forty Years On, yeah. they've had a they had careers subsequently almost as distinguished or as distinguished as the History <laughs> Boys, did they well, not? It's well, the the, the, the my, George Fenton who, who writes uh, who, well, he's written music for most of my plays, but he uh, also writes wrote the music for um, uh, Gandhi and for uh, all David Attenborough series. Um, and then, uh, m most uh, recently, come to fame is uh, Keith McNally, who, who's the uh, proprietor of Balthazar, the new posh restaurant in Covent Garden. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yes, they, they. Anthony uh, Andrews was he? And Anthony Andrews yeah. was in it. That's right. Um, and uh, but they were. It was. A, it was a lovely time. We ran for a year, and uh, and it was really nice. Uh, then, um, after 40 Years On, the next play was Getting On, was it not? And yeah. yeah that uh, was less happy, I'm afraid. But uh, uh, it's only, I, I look back on, I, I, I didn't get on with Kenneth Moore, who, who uh, was playing a Labour MP. I mean, the fact he was playing a Labour MP was surprising, because he was quite right-wing. <laughs> um, uh, and he, he, uh, he was being brought up in, a, in the... Uh, the commercial theatre where the star uh, dictated everything, which Gilgood never did. He wasn't like that. But, uh, but Kenneth Moore wanted to cut the script and, uh, and I was uh, too green, really, to, to sort of negotiate that and to be tactful about it. And, and he did uh, eventually ban me from the theatre. <laughs> so uh, I, I wasn't allowed to go to rehearsals. Um, and uh, it's quite there was a quite funny side to this because uh, the designer was Julia Trevelyan Oman, who uh, who at that time uh, was uh, courting. I don't know how what else how else you would describe it. Roy Strong, 
uh, and uh, she was a very, very conscientious designer, but she'd been so uh, swept off her feet by this uh, romantic thing that uh, she really wasn't really interested in the design of this house. And, uh, and eventually I had to bring down books and pictures and whatnot from my own house, which I then had to smuggle into the theatre because I wasn't, in theory, allowed to be, <laughs> to be there, you see. So it was quite funny. Um, and uh, I, I th I looking back on that, I, uh, I read some of it the other day, and uh, I realised that I, I was so... Uh, in a way, I suppose young playwrights are. I, I wrote immensely long speeches for the actors, uh, which uh, I wouldn't inflict on, on an audience and I wouldn't inflict on actors today. I would make it much more... Oh, it's one of the things I've learned from you, probably. Uh, you know, to keep it short. <laughs> and uh, and it, at that time, I, I just uh, let it rip. And, uh, uh, and it, it, it did well enough, did the play, but um, it's not one I look back on with any uh, uh, nostalgia. But the next two plays were with Alec Guinness, yes. uh, uh, oh. Habeas Corpus and The Old oh. Country. The, 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 they, uh, they both did very well. Um, but but the, we, Alec was, um, uh, again, I was really surprised. That he was, I, it, they were directed by Ronald Ayer. Uh, and Ron had worked with Alec before, and <clears throat> so he, f he went to him with this play, and, um, and Alec saw something in it that he liked, and I think it was, habeas corpus is really about, about uh, lost and the body, and, uh, um, and he's a kind of, oh, I don't know, it, uh, uh, the last line used to, it isn't, but it used to be, uh, he who's lost lasts, lasts longest. Uh, and somehow that appealed to Alec, I don't know why. But anyway, uh, he decided he wanted to do it. And uh, uh, we, um, we rehearsed it uh, in the basement of the St. James's Piccadilly, the church. Uh, and it was a good rehearsal period. And, and the, uh, what, the, uh, the other person who was in it who people would have heard of was Andrew Sachs. But this was pre... Uh, Faulty Towers, um, and uh, we opened in Oxford, uh, and uh, uh, it's difficult to explain because the plot's so complicated, but Andrew Sachs played a, uh, a falsy fitter, I mean, who, a man who, um, who um, uh, sold uh, uh, false bras, as it were, uh, and he had to come on and... Um, and, be, and oh, it's, it's so complicated, <laughs> I can't explain. <laughs> but anyway, it was an uproarious scene when he came on, and he was brilliant doing it. Uh, and the first night, uh, he really stole the show. Uh, and, uh, and the next morning, uh, I remember walking around the Ashmolean Museum with uh, Michael Codron, who was producing it, and Alec, and Alec saying, you know, I can't possibly go on with this at all. Uh, and and wanting, to be, wanting to be excused from doing it, really because, he didn't say that was why, but it was because Andrew Sachs, as he saw it, upstaged him totally. Uh, but uh, eventually he, he um, sort of um, came round to it and, and, uh, and had a good time. Um, and he said about it... Uh, it was the first time he'd ever made any money on the stage. That uh, He'd always taken the stage to be some 
something he did in between films and which he did, as it were, for culture's sake. Uh, he never thought of it as a way of, uh, of making any money. Uh, and the, sec the next play I did was again with him called The Old Country, uh, about a, a spy, uh, a foreign office spy who'd gone to live in Russia. And there, again, that's got enormously long speeches in it, which, uh, again, I wouldn't uh, inflict today, but, um, but there are some good things in it. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Around this time, you were, you were uh, writing for television as well. That, and that, uh, when you said to me what was the first play I wrote, the first play I wrote, in a way... Um, I remember thinking, well, I don't know how you do this. It was a t um, I started thinking about writing my first television play uh, in the late 60s, I suppose. Uh, and uh, that was a play called A Day Out, in which um, some, a group of cyclists go from uh, Halifax to Fountains Abbey uh, 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 in 1911. Uh, and I had no idea how you wrote a television play. Uh, and it was going to be directed by Stephen Frears, who had no idea how you directed a television play either. <laughs> uh, so it was all, uh, what would they, these days they would call a learning curve. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, but I, I, I remember how I wrote it, which was just writing out a list of um, remarks and things, but often things that my parents had said, uh, or stuff that I'd heard, and stories and such like. Um, and then assigning them, of farming them out to various characters. I had no idea about the characters, and, they, they, and I, I know this sounds um, pretentious, but I'm sure some of Shakespeare is written like that. <laughs> uh, that, um, that you, you know, you get lines which probably in, in the character, they, they don't fit in with the character at all, but somehow they were spare, and so they got the line. <laughs> but anyway... Um, it, uh, it, it worked, um, th uh, and uh, I always remember the, um, Brian Glover, who uh, was in it, who, uh, who was an uh, all-in wrestler in his spare time. Uh, and uh, he, he, people will remember him as, um, as the, the gym master or the football master in uh, Kez. Uh, who, who plays uh, football with the boys and, and, and takes it very seriously. Anyway, um, uh, oh no, no, it wasn't him. I'm, sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you a lie. It was Paul Shane, who was in another television series. But Paul Shane uh, um, uh, had to, uh, he got to Fountains and he had to, uh, and there's a lovely view of, uh, shot of the Fountains Abbey, and he had to get off his bike and say, me. My bum's numb. Uh, and he, he couldn't say it right. He, he, he said, uh, my bum's numb, implying that there could have been some other part that could be numb. Uh, and because I was very green and didn't know that you didn't do this with actors, I tried to tell him that's not the way to say it. You see, you get to say, my bum's numb. That's what he should have said. Uh, and... And he could never say it right, partly because I told him what to say, how to do it. And of course, you, you know, you, you, I learned that you're supposed to do this through the director, and the director would <laughs> tell them how to say it. But um, 
Although some actors still do like to be told, don't they? I mean, they do, and I yeah. and I've never had any problem with you saying <laughs> saying, <laughs> no, know, saying what to, <laughs> what how the line should go. But but, uh, but, but it is actually it, it is it is a convention yeah. um, uh, honoured often in the breach that nobody gives a, an actor a line reading; they have to discover it for themselves. But as soon as you do, as soon as you do start giving actors line readings, when you think I'm old enough now just to say that's wrong, do it this way, <laughs> you realise what a relief it is to them. <laughs> Go round the houses, you know. How do you really feel about your bum? <laughs> Which is what they teach you at directing school. <laughs> but we were back at Fountains Abbey, uh, probably with exactly the same shots yes, for the History Boys, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. With the History Boys. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and that's one of the one of the pleasures of. of uh, filming or uh, being in the theatre or wherever, that you actually can go in these places when there's nobody else there. And, uh, and it is magical. Yeah. Do you think those early television films that you made could be made nowadays? Do you think anybody would commission them? I, well, I, I, that nearly didn't get commissioned uh, um, because uh, I, I, my producer was a lovely man called Innes Lloyd. And Innes... Um, took it to uh, the head of the department and, and, uh, and gave her the script. And she said, um, well, I don't, I don't think we want to do this. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, it goes to Fountains Abbey, in fact. <laughs> uh, and, uh, anyway, and he was really good with this because he somehow got it made. But um, it, it, these days, it would be involve accountants and going through enormous performance before you actually got permission to do it. But in those days, you know, the, you did, they were doing plays so often that um, it was almost a routine, you know. You didn't actually have to ask permission almost. Yeah. Uh after um, The Old Country, I think the next play was Enjoy, yeah. which was revived very successfully a couple of years ago, but the first time through was uh, tricky, yes? A disaster, yeah. disaster. Uh, uh, John Plowright was in it, and so Laurence Olivier was in attendance sometimes. Uh, and I remember at the dress rehearsal, which was fairly dreadful, um, and it, uh, dreadful partly my fault, because uh, it was far too long for a star, and it should have been cut. Um, but uh, Laurence Olivier um, stood up in the stage box and said, this is the best play I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that it was going to be a disaster. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, uh, it, I mean, it, I mean, it turned out all right in the end, but it was... Uh, um, it, well, the people didn't like it then because it wasn't naturalistic really they they uh, and it was the first thing i'd ever done which wasn't and uh, and it's also about the north which uh, at that time uh, well the only person who'd written about the north on stage was david story and uh, his plays were much better um but uh anyway i'm, I'm so glad it uh, you know it was revived and turned out well yeah and then kafka's dick yeah um uh, and you also wrote a television film about mm. Kafka, did you not? Mm. And both of them, uh, again, as I've said, both the same. I was still writing enormous speeches, enormous long speeches. Um, uh, and they're both uh, quite bleak. Um, but uh, the Kafka's Dick is a comedy, uh, more about biography, as much about biographies about Kafka. Um, and... Uh, 
um, the insurance man, which is a television play, is is uh, bleaker still, really. Um, and uh, it's awful, really, because I now I wouldn't, you know, you if you said something to me about Kafka, I wouldn't be interested. And it's awful the way you you get interested in something, you write a play about it, and then you move on, and uh, um, and you feel it's evidence of triviality of mind, really, but it isn't. You, you just, uh, somehow, it, uh, writing these two plays answered something that I was interested in at that time. And then, you know, if you wanted me to take part in something here about Kafka, I wouldn't want to do, you know, I wouldn't be interested. Yeah. Yeah. I think the next, the next stage plays you, you wrote. The other next. I think I was the double bill. Oh, yeah, no, was the it? double bill. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That, and then, then, then yeah. Wind in the Willows, which then was, the uh, which was the, right. the, the uh, sheer joy. Yeah, uh, it was. A, it was a big stroke of luck for me. I mean, I can remember saying to Richard Eyre, um, I quite like to do a big family show, and I was thinking the Wind in the Willows, and. Uh, Richard said, well, he'd already talked to you about a play about Kenneth Graham. Yeah. And I think at the same time, you, you had just recorded that wonderful uh, radio win in the oh. as well. So the, 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 the play he talked to me about, about uh, he wanted to mix scenes from Wind in the Willows with scenes from Kenneth Graham's life. Uh, and I knew nothing of Kenneth Graham's life at that time. And then read about it and... Uh, uh, and found that it was appallingly sad. Uh, he, um, as a boy, he'd wanted to go to university, wanted to go to Oxford. Uh, his parents uh, either couldn't afford it or didn't want him to go and put him into the Bank of England, where he did very well. He became, I think, chief cashier. Uh, but he was, uh, so he was obviously uh, a lot about him. Uh, and he did a bit of writing on the side. Uh, and uh, he, then, uh, he then married and had a son. And the son was, uh, was disabled uh, and was half blind, I think. Uh, and uh, it was to this boy that uh, he told the stories which became Wind in the Willows. Um, but the boy was unhappy, and uh, um, he. Uh, but Graham projected onto him all his own aspirations, as parents tend to do, and and so although I don't think the boy wanted to go and probably wasn't intellectually equipped to go, he went to Oxford, uh, as Graham had wanted to do. Uh, but at some, when he was at Oxford, he. He went out and lay down on the railway line across Port Meadow and uh, killed himself. Uh, and and uh, after which, and this is the awful thing, the, their marriage, which had been rather tottering, became much stronger and they were much happier. Um, and I couldn't see how you could uh, mix this in with Wind in the Willows without it being so gloomy. And um, uh, and so that's so I said no to Richard Eyre, and that then. Then you asked me about doing the, the play itself, but uh, I was very—I was quite nervous at the time because uh, you worked in a way that uh, I'd never been able to work. That's to say, um, we didn't exactly—we we started off with a script, but it wasn't the script we ended up with. 
And uh, a lot of it was rewritten as we went along, which I'd never been able to do, really, with anybody else, uh, but which was the way we've always done, really, since. Um, so I would, that was a great uh, breakthrough for me and a revelation, really. That was, I can remember, that was partly to do with who we had in the room, because that first time through, the first time we did it, the chief weasel and Norman, the deputy yeah, yeah. weasel, were Tim McMullen and Adrian yeah, Scarborough. Yeah, right, yeah. And they were, they were so good yes, that you just, good. you just wanted more stuff for yeah. them, didn't you? So yeah. They didn't really have very much in, yeah. the, in, in the original script. Yeah. Um, and they, they also, they were very good. They realized early on that they were liked. Yeah. And so yeah. they used to just kind of lurk when, at the back of the room when they thought there might be more lines. Going <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but, but the, same, the same applied with the, the George III, which came yeah. straight afterwards. I mean that uh, Nigel, um, once one saw what Nigel was going yeah. to do, he then, you then could write round him and, and write more scenes for him. And, uh, uh, and, and that also was sheer joy, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got halfway through, uh, uh, the other half, has mostly been on this stage, so maybe we'll do the other, the, the second half um, at some other time. But meanwhile, uh, I think I should, um, I, since we said we were going to talk about people, if you want to ask questions about people, that's fine. But if you want to ask about Alec Guinness and John Gielgud and uh, uh, Laurence Olivier, you can do that too. As, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, or indeed Alan Bennett. So <laughs> let, let's take some questions, and I will repeat the question um, when it's come. Sir. Having, having done all you've done, what inspires you now? I don't, inspires isn't really the word. I mean, I, I, if I didn't work, I wouldn't know what to do. So, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I get, I'm getting slower, but I do go and sit to the table, you know, every day. Um, and uh, and you, you, you know, there are actors you think of, you'd like to work with, and you think of trying to write things for them. But uh, I, at the moment, I haven't got anything uh, new that I'm working on. But I, do, I, I go and turn my papers over and write a line here and a line there. Uh, and uh, there does come a point when you've, you've somehow got more of a sheaf of papers and you think, oh, this might make a play. And so I'm at that stage. It's the it's dip, most difficult stage before you actually have decided what you're going to do. Yes. She, want, she wants to say happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, uh, I don't mind so long as you don't sing. <laughs> uh, is there anybody upstairs? I th yes. Well, I go, I go to Yorkshire uh, every fortnight, so uh, I, know, I never feel, uh, and, and I get restless if I don't go. I couldn't, I couldn't live up there. The village where my parents retired, where I've still got a cottage, is very quiet. Um, and uh, in theory, I ought to be able to work there, but I can't work there. I, I need to be uh, in a place where I'm likely to be interrupted. And, uh, <laughs> 
uh, and, uh, and that's down here, really. But um, I, I, uh, I, call it, I still call it going, I still call it going home. Uh, so you, you know, going north is going home. Um, but uh, I, I don't have much patience with um, the E-Bar Gum School, you know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you have any habits or rules that you stick to when you're writing? No, I, uh, I write with a pen, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and then I go on to a typewriter. Though I'm I'm, I'm getting old, so that my I get arthritic if I'm uh, a long time on the typewriter, and it's not an electric typewriter. Um, I, I got a computer thinking. Uh, the keyboard was much lighter, and that would be that would be all right. But then the computer got stolen, and so we've not replaced it. Um, but uh, it's not it's not a habit really, or a superstition. But I, 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 I don't want to I don't want to see it in print uh, too early. Uh, if I see uh, in, it's in a display, a display, as it were, uh, uh, printed out what I've been writing. Uh, it seems finished too soon, and so uh, I'd much prefer to work on a, a freehand on a piece of paper and uh, and can cross-reference and put things in the margin and so on. And people say, "Oh, well, you could do that on a computer, but it's not the same." I, I you know, I also like. I like the physical look of a manuscript. You know, I like I like uh, what it looks like, um, and with all the notes and, and jokes and whatnot left in. Mm. Yes. Would you say there's a golden rule for successful collaboration? Would you say there's a golden rule for successful collaboration? Well, I don't know. If there, I, I don't, if there is, I don't want to know it. Uh, well, I, I, I often, people often say, well, why do we work so well together? Um, I, don't, I don't know why, and I don't really want to know why, because if one knew why, you probably couldn't, it wouldn't work. Um, um, I, I've no idea why we work so well together, because we don't know each other all that well. We don't see each other uh, socially very much. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. Either, maybe Nick is, uh, knows much more than I do, as it were, and, and manages me very well. But I, I, I never feel that at all. I, I, what I feel um, still is uh, uh, I do want to please him with the scripts I write. And it is like showing up my homework, you know. Uh, and uh, I, feel, uh, I feel pleased if he likes what I've written. Um, but, uh, and I've never really, no other directors uh, I've worked with has, has been like that quite. Um, uh, and, and, and I've not been, um, I've not had such a good time as, uh, as I have in the last 20 years working here, really. Mm. I, sh shall I, 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 I see, because I, I see a lot of, collaborations, obviously, between actors and directors, between directors and writers, and, I've, and I'm involved in them. From a director's point of view, 
um, you've got to um, you've got to admire, love the the play, the writing that it's your job uh, to bring to life. Uh, that almost goes without saying. Um, you've got to feel uh, that in some way, whatever it's trying to say, you're very happy to say too. Um, you maybe have an intuition that um, you can pull out of it uh, something that is latent and not obviously on the surface. Uh, I think it would be hard for a director and writer um, to work together, and I've seen this uh, and its opposite, to work together if they don't actually like and enjoy each other's company and like and enjoy the way each other's w works. I don't think there's a mystery about it, but I have been um, here at the National kind of piggy in the middle when directors and writers have fallen out. Um, and the result is never great. It's, uh, there, there is always something unhappy, uneasy, uh, that finds its way onto the stage. And um, there's no point, I think, as a director, particularly when you get to the stage where, where, um, where you have a little bit of choice about what you're doing, there's no point in doing something uh, merely professionally, merely because uh, you've been asked to do it. Uh, it's a long time since I, as a director, got anywhere close to that. And the results were not good. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's not a mystery. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's probably about, it's, it's, it's not unlike a collaboration in any area of life. Um, anyway, uh, another question. Uh, at the back there, yes. Why do you reject the, uh, the accolade of national treasure? Why do you bristle? I don't bristle, it just embarrasses me, that's all. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I came to the matinee of this house yesterday, and, uh, and I was sitting uh, in my seat, and uh, a woman came along and said, Oh, we're in the same row as a national treasure. <laughs> and, uh, um, <laughs> and I pretended not to hear, I just... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I don't know, I just don't feel it anyway, I don't feel that. That's what I am, really. Um, I'm, I'm, glad pe I'm glad people like my stuff, obviously, and I'm glad people feel able to speak to me, and I'm, I'm glad uh, I get a lot of feedback from people who, you know, because I'm such a timid-looking person, you know, can feel they can come up to me and say, and all that I, I relish and, and, and feel fortunate because I don't think other playwrights get it in quite the same way. Not, it's nothing to do with their quality. It's just to do with, uh, with uh, people know my face and, you know, and uh, I'm approachable. But uh, I don't want to be on any kind of pedestal at all. Uh. I think we've probably got time for two more quick ones. Yes. Speaking of national treasures, I think some years ago you presented a radio program, and perhaps a live performance as well, of Philip Larkin's poetry. Mm -hmm. Do you know any funny stories about him? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was here. It was the first time I had ever appeared here at the National. 
and I did uh, a program put together by Patrick Garland, who last died about uh, a month ago. Uh, but uh, pa uh, Patrick put together a program called Down Cemetery Road uh, of Larkin's poetry. And uh, Alan Bates normally did it, uh, uh, only uh, for some reason Alan couldn't do it that time. And, uh, uh, and so Patrick asked me to do it. Uh, the National didn't um, advertise the fact I was doing it rather than Alan Bates. Uh, and I felt uh, when I went on the stage that, um, you know, there were people expecting to see Alan Bates as he'd been... Uh, wrestling half naked with uh, <laughs> uh, Oliver Reed, and <laughs> I, I don't know, <laughs> fallen off a bit since then. But anyway, uh, and also another uh, comic thing about it was um, I'd been, I was going through some uh, complicated dentistry, and uh, and I'd asked the dentist that morning whether uh, the uh, anaesthetic would have worn off. You see, he said, "Oh yes, no, no, it will have worn." Of course, it hadn't worn off, uh, and uh, and I'd be reading this rather somber poetry. And suddenly I'd hit a nerve in my mouth, go, yeah! <laughs> uh, so it was a very peculiar uh, poetry reading. But um, about Larkin himself, uh, uh, I don't really know any funny stories other than, uh, you know, the, the stories everybody knows about him. Um, uh, he didn't care for me, really, because I, I, uh, I'd once taken part in a South Bank show about him, uh, in which I said uh, only complimentary things, but that was as big an insult to him as, <laughs> as the reverse, really. Um, but um, I still think his poetry is wonderful, but uh, alas, I don't really have any funny stories about I'd probably think of one on the way home. <laughs> and one, one last question. Yes. That's uh, talking about uh, plays developing in rehearsals. The video sequences in the History Boys that covered the scene changes, was that in the script or did that, was that a... That is entirely Nick's idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'm very glad to be able to say so because uh, it, it also illustrates something about, about our collaboration because um, in, when we were rehearsing the History Boys, um, we... Uh, uh, we had the actual screens that we used in the rehearsal room uh, to the classroom dividers, as it were, uh, and, uh, and I'd assumed these were just rehearsal props. And at one point I said, uh, it's, we, they're a bit slow moving these things about. Uh, we aren't going to be using these, are we? So he said, oh no, these are the actual things. And I thought, oh, Lord, this is going to be a slow job. So, but uh, nobody enlightened me about the... Um, the uh, videos, uh, but but uh, when I raised it with Nick, he said, "Oh, don't worry, it'll be all right." And I uh, <laughs> I must have had absolute faith because I didn't worry about it. And then um, they went off one weekend, I think, to shoot these uh, video scenes at Kidbrook, was it? Yeah. It? And uh, um, and I wasn't part of that, so I didn't go. Uh, and then we had a showing of them the following week uh, in the, I think, the last week of rehearsal. 
Uh, and it was magical. Uh, it was uh, you didn't look at the stage when the you know when the screens were being trundled about. You did actually follow the story on the screen. And nobody nobody bothered to explain this to me. But it was a good job because I probably wouldn't have believed it anyway. I wouldn't believe it would work. But uh, I I was as uh, as uh, carried away by it as the audience were. And that's entirely due to Nick. I I think I did try to explain it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I I realised you were glazing over because I wasn't really explaining it very well. So I, I did say, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Because, but I remember you were asking around. You asked Bob Crowley, the designer, what is it he's doing with this video? <laughs> and Bob said to you, don't worry, don't worry, it'll all be fine. Uh, um, the, the guy who did them, he was, he was very good. The, he was, the, yeah, the, Ben. And very quick, wasn't he? Yeah. He was lovely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, we've got to vacate the stage now and uh, let them get, get it ready for people. Uh, as... Always, I want to say thank you to Alan Bennett for this. Alan, and for all the